Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Madam Cronin. I'm Garrett Lisi. And today we're discussing the future of physics. That means we'll get into how our understanding of physics and reality has changed over time, where it currently stands today, and what sort of progress we might hope to make in the future. But before we get into all that, I'd like to just make crystal clear what the mystery is that you and all theoretical physicists are trying to solve. You know, I've heard it described as we're searching for the source code of the universe. I've heard it as we're searching for a grand unified theory of everything. How would you describe the problem that theoretical physicists like yourself are trying to solve? And how have you gone about trying to solve it in particular? Um, well, I think maybe a lot of people enter physics with grand dreams of figuring out, you know, the source code behind everything. But really, when you start tackling physics and get to learn more and more about it, you get to learn just how much we already know mm -hmm. and how we already know the physics behind almost everything we can possibly have experimental access to. So uh, as a graduate student, your ambitions get pared down quite a bit more to reality. And you're happy if you can make one little incremental increase in the body of knowledge. So um, ultimately... Uh, what we really want to know is not everything, but rather just more. Yeah. Right? So we want, we want to know more about how the world works. And, uh, and it's, I mean, you, you can start getting a little megalomaniacal and getting some ambitions to say, hey, we're really close, it feels like, to getting like a really full picture. So where it starts to look like things maybe are getting close to a complete picture of what reality is. But as you get to know fill in more and more of your physics knowledge, um, you get to know just how ambitious that is, and it's probably <laughs> not going to happen. Right. You should be happy just if you can make any incremental improvement at all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, ult ultimately, uh, physics is just a uh, pursuit of understanding how the world works using mathematical tools. Yeah. And mathematics ultimately is just an extension of common sense. To an to a increasingly abstract level. Totally. And it seems like a lot of people nowadays, like we st are still thinking of the world in a very mechanical sort of Newtonian way, like maybe not physicists, yeah. but your average person. So I'd, it be, might be useful to just go through sort of how the field's understanding of reality has evolved from Newton, where you basically have like bowling balls moving around in a very mechanical yeah. way to more of Einstein's relativity where it's all relative to you and then quantum mechanics, all the weirdness introduced by that. And then sort of how you've gone at the problem from the relativity side and geometry and, and how you've approached it. Yeah, there, there, there are quite a few, I guess you can call them sort of wait, what moments in <laughs> physics <laughs> where it started out like just thinking about the trajectories of projectiles. Right. And you know, the, maybe the Greeks thought that a projectile would travel up, and then fall down, right? And then they're like, wait, actually, no, they go in sort of these parabolic arcs, right? And then they would have charts for these things. And a lot, and a lot of early physics was all about weaponry. So the, the just very early on, the value of a physicist was, was in improving weaponry. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of continued and why a lot of funding still comes from the military right. and defense for, uh, for science research. But anyway, um, it really started out just as common sense. What happens in the world and why? And, how, and, and 
but the scientific aspect of it is not, let's not just sit around talking about it. Let's actually test it. So this is, this is what distinguishes science from other pursuits is you go out and test things and modify your ideas based on the results of testing. And this is, this is what really led to progress in science and progress in the world as a result of science is this whole idea of just being able to test things and, and modify your thinking based on what those tests come back. So we, we started with things we could have very easy visual access to. You know, apples fall, falling out of trees, um, machines working, you know, just, just how things would move around in reality. And it's Newtonian physics. Okay, we have easy access to it. But, um, but then, yeah, there, there seemed to be inconsistencies in it. So we started dealing with light and we started figuring out how light works. It's like, all right, well, now we know that light always travels at this speed, right? And it's like, but wait a minute, what if you're on a train and you shine a flashlight, right? Is it, does it travel at that speed plus the speed of the train? No, the law, the, the mathematical laws we figured out describe light, say it always travels at the speed regardless of what reference frame it's measured in. It's like, well, what's, what's that mean? It's like, so that, that means that if you're in a moving frame of reference, that either your time is slowed down or your distances have shrunk on that train that's moving. It's like how, wait, what? <laughs> so that's yeah. like, so the, and this is special relativity that actually the world does work this way that yes, the speed of light is constant and it's actually the flow of time where the scale of distance is actually changed based on how fast things are moving which is just totally mind bending and it's really hard to visualize. So you can, so you can start playing with that and mathematically you start working out as a physicist. So it's like, okay, yeah, this is all consistent. It all works this way. It's just really freaking weird. Yeah. And then they start, and then they started working on, uh, like temperature and how temperature works and how, uh, things at various temperatures, uh, expel energy. And it's like, well, okay, if, if something's continually ex expelling energy at different wavelengths of light, and, we, and those wavelengths carry the energy away, um, then eventually you get down to where it, it should be expelling all its energy very quickly, but we don't know that doesn't happen. Things cool down more slowly. So there actually has to be a, a like a one quanta of the smallest amount of energy that associated with, with something being expelled. So the, and this is where the idea of quantum mechanics came from. Right, mm -hmm. is that en en amounts of energy actually quantized, and that was very, very different. Nothing we had never encountered anything like that. And before that, everything had it, it, been, uh, you, you know, like a, a continuous spectrum of what it could be. And and then in quantum mechanics, it's like okay, not only not only that, but if you look at like the position and momentum of moving objects, right, that we can't know their momentum and their position at the same time that that if you know this position its momentum actually isn't even well defined mm -hmm. wait what yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know, how, does that, how does that even make sense it's, it's it's like nothing we encounter in the macroscopic world it's entirely different and so physicists have had to wrap their minds around these concepts that are entirely foreign to our scale as humans right we, yeah. As humans, we never we never travel near the speed of light, so we never get to experience what that's like. And we're and we're large; we're not down at the scale of atoms, so we don't see what quantum mechanics is like. We only have access access to that experimentally through through our apparatus. And and but we still have to think about it and model and understand what goes on at that scale. And we've been really successful at doing so. 
but we no longer but fundamental physics now no longer acts at a scale that we you know have interact with as humans what, what we're interacting with as humans is like eight scales up in emergence right uh, up to this distance scale and up to this level of complexity from the basic building blocks and another wait what moment was like figuring out when we got to know more and more particles more and more subatomic particles in this whole zoo of what particles exist um that they correspond to uh these beautiful complex mathematical symmetry groups called lee groups after Sophus Lee, the mathematician who came up with them. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and to find out that these things have to do with elementary particles, then it all, all ultimately comes back to, to geometric shapes and how these different, uh, how different high-dimensional surfaces are, are shaped and interact and, and uh, evolve around one another. Right. The fact that you described the whole universe of particle physics this way was re really a fantastic fantastic thing it was it was probably an equal rel revelation to that of general relativity seeing how space-time could be described as a four four-dimensional fabric um but it's maybe not as well appreciated and i think it really really should be yeah it's it's amazing how long we've known that time isn't something that's a constant it's something that changes with different curvatures and yet we still seem so caught up with like causality and cause and effect as being yeah. this like way of explaining everything but, you know, really a more accurate way of describing it would be with emergence, that there are just these phenomena that emerge at different layers. And it's like, you know, we are very familiar with our layer here as, you know, humans in the four dimensions we have access to. And we can go lower and look at the cells and see, oh, there seems to be something similar going on on like a smaller micro level here, with, which is kind of like its own little universe. But we rarely seem to look at the higher levels of emergence above us, like, right. you know, cities, civilizations, all beings, all earthlings, like, and yeah. whenever you try to say like, okay, well, what's the scale of this thing? Are we just, you know, insignificant little like fungi growing on some small planet in the Milky right. Way? Or are we like, is the whole universe just on one like hair of some giant universe that we don't <laughs> have access to? It all depends on, on what you're comparing it to. Uh, yeah. So that's why I love like how you've actually not only done the legwork to sort of see how these particles interact, but actually to create a visualization. And I was I was playing with your model um, before we got on this call, which is just like amazing uh, fun oh, to the do. LPG particle explorer. Yeah. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, that's it's uh, uh, let you show via geometry how elementary particles interact according to charge conservation, which which gives you almost everything. It, it shows you almost everything that can happen. Which is yeah. really what it's about is what can happen. I was fascinated that the center of that model is the photon. And it seems like that's just one of the keys to unlocking the mysteries of the universe is with light. And some people have said maybe it's related to consciousness in some regard. Um, but I don't know if you have thoughts on like the significance of light or what, what role that may play in understanding. Well, in the uh, in the model you were playing with, you're you're looking at the the charges of different elementary particles and how those charges are conserved, and the the reason the photons at the center of the diagram is the photon has zero charge, hmm. so it doesn't have electric charge, doesn't have weak charge, doesn't have strong charge, doesn't have gravitational spin, nothing. Okay, and that's and that's why it's the center. It has zero charge, so um, it's sort of the balance point that everything else is around. Now, as, as well as photons there, there are also some gluons and, and weak particles also have zero charge. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, 
And this has to do with the geometry of this smooth high dimensional shape that's being described by these charges. Um, for how this interacts with consciousness, um, I think we're consciousness feels very unusual in the universe. Mm -hmm. um, and this is also why our level of emergence might actually be quite a special one. Hmm. Because, you know, as you, as you, as you go, as you start out with subatomic particles and go up to atoms and, and then molecules and, and biological structures and higher and higher up until you get to us, um, you have increasing layers of complexity and copy, computational capacity and, and just uh, more richness in the systems. But then when you go up higher in scale, when you, when you go up to collections of people, a mob of people or, or even uh, governments, they seem to be less intelligent than many of the individuals that make them up. Hmm. So I, 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 I know I have many friends who are much smarter than any government on the planet. <laughs> right. Right. As, so, so, so humans as a whole seem pretty damn dumb. We don't even seem smart enough not to shit in our own bed. <laughs> right. We're, we're changing the climate to make it uninhabitable for ourselves. And even though, even though members of our human society are brilliant and can see this happening and say, hey, guys, we really need to stop doing this. Right. Humanity as a whole, as, a, as an organism, is fucking up its own environment, which is one of the yeah. stupidest things you can do. We're just not smart enough as a whole not to do that. And this might even be the answer to the Fermi paradox. This might even be why we don't see aliens swarming around in the galaxy. It might be that it always happens that on a scale of a society, it's just not smart enough and it always self-pollutes until it self-limits. Interesting. Yeah. And this, and and uh, also, as things get larger, as you go to planetary scales, um, uh, in a certain sense, a solar system looks like an atom, right? And you have all these uh, different stars. Made, you know, we have like 50 billion stars in the Milky Way or something. Um, that's a pretty big as an organism. But the thing is, the the time that this thing has had to evolve isn't really long enough for complex interactions to happen, say, between galaxies. Hmm. The the whole universe, you know, 14 billion years or something, just isn't old enough for a ton of communication to happen and for structures to form and for emergence to take place. Uh, so so we, we, we've had some structure formation, sure, but not enough for really complex behavior to happen. So it, it might be that at our physical scale of a couple meters, which is sort of in between on the universe from the from the smallest possible subatomic scales all the way up to the largest possible cosmological scales. We're sort of right in the middle. That could just be where the the richest, yeah, uh, you know, you know, level of emergence happens. It could be in between these big scales, which is where we happen to sit. And I don't think it's a coincidence we sit here. I think we're we're here thinking about this because consciousness is one of the most richly complex emergent things that can happen. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I've heard consciousness described as the substrate of reality, like what reality's in. Or I've heard uh, Alan Watts talks about how you could think of reality as like sort of like a dark room where you can't really see any image 
until the solution is there. But once you put the image in the solution, which is consciousness, the whole picture comes into view and you can just see this, all these phenomenal patterns. And this gets into just viewing reality as information, which maybe is not so special when there's no conscious beings interacting with it. But once conscious beings are interacting with it, then it creates all of these incredible, you know, geometric patterns and, you know, synchronicity. And is that sort of, do you think like uh, reality as information is, is uh, our most accurate way of describing it? Um, there's been a lot of thinking in that direction lately. And uh, I think part of that is motivated by the lack of progress in other areas of fundamental physics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some people have had theory. time on their hands to go out and explore these other things. But um, uh, I'm pretty much a, a, a conservative, crunchy old scientist in thinking that uh, consciousness is more something that human brains do, right? That really um, it's very much attached to the neurological process itself and that it's not that consciousness is fundamental in the universe Hmm. in any way it's just consciousness is something that happens and that we are perceiving our own thinking and are aware of, of our own thinking and that it's that perception of our own thinking that we really uh have as consciousness Hmm. Uh, see, I've wondered about this a lot, if whether consciousness is something that sort of pervades the whole cosmos, or if okay. it's something that's more of an earthling phenomenon. And I also wonder if when people talk about God, are they talking about the highest layer of emergence in the whole cosmos? Or is it really just the highest layer of Earth? And like, you could even call like Gaia is God and to some extent. Um, well, you can do that. And, and I think it's, it's wonderful to sort of extend biological thinking to the whole planet. And I think the Gaia hypothesis is a good one in thinking of the the Earth as a living organism. Um, But I don't see any reason to attribute consciousness to it. Hmm. I think consciousness is something that uh, it requires a more dense, interconnected collection of things, like neurons in our case. And it's, uh, I don't think it's unique to this planet. I'm uh, it would be highly improbable that there aren't other conscious alien beings out there in the galaxy, given how, how many stars and planets there are around stars, right? Just running probabilities. I mean, it's mm-hmm. possible life is exceedingly rare, such that there aren't, but it, it's, it's unlikely. So, so would you say that, like, with at least sticking to Earth, where, where would you say consciousness begins? Because, you know, some people would say that, okay, a protein is conscious, but once you get to the cellular level, it's not conscious. Or others would say that, you know, even a rock is conscious in some very low level way. Right. And that um, gets into panpsychism. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Um, uh, I have a more uh, functional view on it, and I don't have a hard and fast definition of consciousness. I'm not sure anyone has a really <laughs> perfect one <laughs> or even could. Um, it's certainly something I think we'll learn a lot more about as we have better and better machine intelligence, mm-hmm. because I think we will, uh, perhaps within some of our lifetimes have machines that become smarter than us mm-hmm. in almost all ways. That was one of my questions actually. <laughs> and, and I think, uh, once that starts happening, we're going to have a much better handle on consciousness and what it is and what it means for, for say a consciousness to be duplicated. Like if you have a copy yeah. of yourself, 
which is something we can't do as humans, but it's something computers are going to be able to do quite easily. And that's going to be freaking weird. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I don't, I don't think things like rocks have any significant level of consciousness. I do, uh, attribute a scale of consciousness, uh, you know, according to comp functional complexity. So I think like dogs and pets, you know, I think, I think they're conscious to a certain degree and to a lesser degree than we are as humans, although maybe more so than some humans. <laughs> um. <laughs> one of my dogs is really smart and one of them is definitely not smart but so i always wonder like <laughs> yeah so so I, I do attribute different levels of consciousness and, and by the time you get down to a rock uh pretty much zero right what do you uh, uh this might be an out there question but what do you make of people who are referred to as like old souls like it does kind of seem like maybe some conscious energy has just been around for a lot longer than others. And some people have that kind of feeling to them where it's like they've lived for thousands of years, whereas someone else is like a new soul and everything's exciting and they don't have that same quality. Um, I think this is a it's an interesting way of understanding people. And there are all sorts of I mean, as we're all sort of growing as humans, uh, in childhood and up into early adulthood, it starts to occur to this that not everybody else is exactly like us. And um, whether someone's more introverted, more extroverted, more dominated by feelings, more dominated by thinking, or if they seem like a more evolved human, like you call them an older soul, as opposed to someone who's sort of like bouncing around from one idea to another and not really organized in their thinking or feeling, um, it seems like, wow, maybe they learned more in past lives or something, and that's why they're so mature now. It's like, no, I think they just learned more in this life, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe their brain was structured to be able to learn more quickly, or maybe they just went through more shit growing up <laughs> and, 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 have, and are more developed as a result, so that you know, that now they seem like a more mature person and, and, and like an older soul, even if that happens at a younger age, or even if you're like 16 years old, but behaving as a, you know, as a more highly functioning being that can totally happen. Yeah. Right. And, and, and some people can be, you know, 50 years old and never have gotten there <laughs> Right. for various reasons. And, um, so I don't, I don't attribute, uh, any mystical, uh, functioning to any of this. I'm, 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 a, yeah. I'm a scientist, right? So I have a, I have a very, I'm, I'm much more of a materialist, but I'm a romantic materialist, you know, and that I have a, a very a wonderful appreciation for nature and its beauty and, uh, and our place in it and uh, how wonderful life can be and, and all this stuff I think is fantastic. So I have a, uh, even though I'm a, I'm a materialist, I, I'm a positive <laughs> materialist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like to totally. Okay, well, I want to hear your uh, romantic materialist view on death also as it relates to consciousness. So let's say, you know, you're out surfing and you see a seal that gets eaten by a shark. Does the conscious energy of that seal like become part of the shark along with its actual physical body? Does it disperse and is just sort of spread throughout the universe? Is it like, okay, that seal is just dead, like, there's nothing remaining of its conscious energy. Like, how would you? How do you think about death and what happens after it? Um, yeah, I've used a, I've used a similar description to really annoy vegans 
<laughs> which is, you know, that by, by eating a cow, I'm elevating that cow to a higher level of consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, I'm, I'm pretty sure the cow doesn't see it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and actually, veganism is the more ethically pure course, damn it. But um, <laughs> the... Uh, and your original, your original question was that, and how does that, how does that develop materialist way? It's, it's a, it's a, I think it's a, a dark subject, and I think most people actually delude themselves in various ways to avoid this subject because it's so fucking terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, I think death is just the act of not existing at some point. So right. I don't know if you've ever been under global anesthetic for some surgery mm-hmm. yeah. where they put you under and you're just gone and then you're back. Mm-hmm. Well, I think when you die, you're just gone. Your consciousness ceases to function because you're the substrate that depends on it. Your brain has ceased to function. So your consciousness is evaporated in nothingness. And I, yeah. I, don't, I don't think consciousness can, sub, can persist beyond the functioning of some sort of substrate, whether it be your, your human brain or whether it's being simulated in a computer mm-hmm. or, or however that consciousness is, is happening, because I think consciousness is more of a verb. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think once the physical substrate breaks down, the consciousness evaporates, goes away. Right. Well, what and, about the concept of that if you've lived for one second, in a sense, you've lived for eternity because time is something that, you know, maybe we only have access to it. And, you know, the arrow of time, as Stephen Hawking says, we can't really move. Yeah. But you could imagine like a higher layer of emergence where you can sort of traverse time. So in some sense, do, would you say that if you have lived for a second, you kind of live for eternity? Or um, I don't know, how do you think about well, I mean, life and death? It, it is freaking to amazing to be, have been alive at all yeah. <laughs> during yeah. any period of time. <laughs> Um, and it's extremely unlikely given how you look at it, but, uh, and looking at the universe as a, as a four dimensional space time whole, then yes, if you're alive, you, you've been alive and you always will have been alive. Mm-hmm. Right. But I mean, as someone who's currently alive, I'd rather be happy and healthy and living as far into the future as possible. Yeah. I want to, I want to maximize my own healthy, happy years. Um, a lot of people wouldn't, which is sort of shocking to me. A lot of people would say, no, I'm not comfortable with like unnaturally extending my lifespan. Right. But we already unnaturally extend our lifespan <laughs> through, you know, through medicine and, and healthy living and everything we possibly can. So the idea that we wouldn't want to do that more in the future is really bizarre to me. I have, I mean, the other way I think of, think about death and the reason it, uh, I'm not at all comfortable with it and I want to extend my own life as much as possible is uh, just FOMO, mm-hmm. right? I just I'm, I I don't want to miss out on all the wonderful stuff that might be happening in the future. Yeah, right. I'd I'd rather just be there for it and <laughs> get to do that stuff too. Totally. So, yeah, we had uh, David Sinclair on this podcast, and he's doing really interesting work in anti-aging. So we may yeah. make some more progress there than people expect. I'm, I'm really happy. I mean, it's only been in the last decade that longevity research has become mainstream. It used to be, it's like, ah, oh, no, fountain of youth, it's a bunch of BS, you know, that can't happen. But there's no reason from physics that we can't extend our lifespans uh, indefinitely. 
Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's an engineering problem, essentially. And uh, so it's, it's wonderful that research is being done that way now. Um, and of course, there, there are like crazy things you can try, like cryonics, where you, you mm-hmm. freeze your brain or something after you're, after you're dead and maybe can be scanned in and revived somehow or simulated or something and, and come back to life that way. Uh, but that's a that's really a long shot. Yeah. Totally. Um, but yes, yeah, as, as far as I mean, going back to death and how hard it is to deal with, um, especially these days when we're in the middle of a pandemic and an unusual number of people, especially older people, are dying. Um, it's really it's really heartbreaking. I, I hate losing people. And um, a lot of people uh, who are religious, you know, comfort themselves that people are going to live on in some way. But as a materialist, I confront this head on and I really just think we've lost those people and it's heartbreaking. And, we, mm-hmm. and that's why we need to you know, do what we can to you know, extend quality life as much as possible so it's less heartbreaking. Um, totally. And there, there are arguments in both directions. Like it, it seems, I mean, when we're consciousness and feeling, it's, it, it feels like this is something that is eternal. It feels like we should go on existing in the universe in some way. And yeah, maybe a way of looking at it is when we die, our consciousness merges with that of the cosmos, and mm-hmm. that's a very natural process. And you can you can try to make your peace with this as just being part of nature, which it is. And a lot of a lot of people make their peace with it that way. Um, a lot of people, you know, fool themselves in thinking they're going to some afterlife. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I, I, I think you know, when you're dead, you're just dead. And it really bothers me that. Since they're going to be dead, Christians are never going to find out that they were wrong. <laughs> but, um, and as far as consciousness and whether consciousness might persist beyond death, I, I, it's just not realistic. I don't know if you've ever, it's horrible. I don't, I don't know if you've ever lost anybody to Alzheimer's disease or one of these degenerative brain diseases. My grandpa, yeah. Yeah. So I lost, I lost my grandmother to, to Alzheimer's disease. And during the progress of the disease, I just saw her consciousness go away, you know, change and go away little bit by bit by bit until she was gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so there's a very there there's a very direct connection between a functioning brain and a, a functioning happy living consciousness, and the, and those two are inextricable, as, as far as I can as far as I know. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, we'll have to see if we can ever get to the point where you can upload your brain to some, you know, silicon version, or if you God, could. I hope so that that would be that would be freaking right. awesome. I don't know if you played in virtual reality, but VR games. Oh yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Well, so that's actually a good segue because I want to get your thoughts on the simulation hypothesis, and yeah. you know, many people have made arguments that if we make any progress whatsoever, eventually our virtual reality games will be just as real as the real thing and given you know how much time has elapsed since the big bang and what and whatnot it may be that we already are in a simulation for whatever the base you know the base reality or uh you know civilization has created so from that perspective it seems way more likely than not that we are living in a simulation and if you were in one that was so real how would you even know so i'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this um, I, I think it's a, well, I mean, there are a couple of things. Um, one is, I don't know if it's reasonable to make probabilistic arguments when you only have one data point. Mm-hmm. It's like right? the anthropic so we only have principle. This one universe that we know about, 
and we can argue that yeah we're simulating other universes within this one but they're super primitive mm -hmm. um and they're you know they're, there's nothing that rich yet so it's it's hard to make probabilistic arguments that make sense that way since we only know about this one universe um also uh, you can you can say the words base reality and we sort of have i, I know what you're meaning by it but how would you know Right. How would someone who thinks they're in a basic reality, how would even know that you are? There's, yeah. no way to, there's no way to test it unless you start seeing glitches. Once you start seeing glitches in reality, then you have some evidence that you're in a, that you're in a simulated one. So the, the UFO spotting of the Navy, does that count as a glitch? Uh, no, that, that counts as seeing weird shit and nobody knows what it is. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, uh, it's possibly uh, aircraft of unknown origin. Right. You know, you don't know what that is. Um, uh, and if if aliens have visited this planet, and I don't think they have because of the vast distances in space and also because humans haven't been around that long. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, so I, I think it's unlikely that any, anybody knows we're here yet. So yeah. even, even though there are, you know, there are you know, billions and billions of other uh, stars in the galaxy and you know our signals are going out into space so aliens are going to see that we're here eventually um, we've only been broadcasting radio waves for a couple hundred years mm -hmm. and if you go out a couple hundred light years into the galaxy you you only get to maybe 10,000 star systems not billions right, right. so the so our, our announcement of hey this is a terrible television show. We're somewhat intelligent, but not very. <laughs> you know, that signal's only gone out to a few thousand other star systems. Yeah. Right? So and it's possible some alien civilization has listening posts up to look for this sort of thing, and, and they'll find out we're here. But it's going to take a while for anything to get here, since I don't think anything goes faster than the speed of light, according to known physics. And we're pretty, and we're reasonably confident in known physics. So. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I hear you. And, and I think that uh, I also hear your argument about base reality. Like, it's so hard to create a mental image of what reality is, just given how much we know now. But I actually find surfing to be a helpful way to just sort of get yourself out of your own head, especially when you're like duck diving under like a massive wave yeah. and you're just being <laughs> like churned up in this cosmic soup. And I, I like I often find myself thinking of reality in terms of of like the ocean and waves like we're sort of like a splash of of matter like and, you know, consciousness going in one particular direction along the arrow of time. But, you, you know, there's probably also like other realities that are mathematically possible going in slightly different directions or different versions. Um, and I know you're you know, you don't love to think about other universes outside of this one because it might not be as useful but I'm... no i do I, I i just think it's more philosophical than scientific because right. we don't have experimental access to it remember science is all about testing and you can't test the existence of other universes if you don't have access to them and they have no effect on ours yeah totally so but it, i i love philosophy it's and and i i love talking about other possible universes and even considering that mathematically when, once you start considering it mathematically, you know, you can sort of bring it into a scientific view, but you can never have experimental access to it. So in that sense, it's not really science. Yeah, totally. But that doesn't mean I don't enjoy thinking about it and, you know, and, and, and considering the idea. And whether we're in a simulation, I mean, one of the reasons I think maybe this might be a base reality, even though, you know, who knows how you, <laughs> you could ever determine that conclusively, 
um, is the richness of physics itself mm. and, and just how hard it is. So, so if you're, if you're going to have a simulated reality, um, it would be much easier to have a simulated reality that's more easily computable. Hmm. So like something like the game of Conway's game of life going on, right? It's sufficiently complex that you could, you could construct biological creatures that run around and interact with each other on this two dimensional grid of propagating ones and zeros, right? With simple rules, you can, you could build a full civilization and perceiving and computational system and consciousness within that simple set of rules. And it would be really easy to compute. Mm hmm. Right? And, and Wolfram's working on these, these lines too. But when we actually look at physics, I mean, at, at quantum field theory, and just the, you know, just the convoluted agony that a computer has to go through to simulate the simplest things going on in quantum field theory, you know, for, you know, for subatomic processes, I mean, it's so hard to compute, like what's going on with quarks and gluons inside mm. a nuclei, inside nuclei, uh, that it leads me to believe that this is not a simulated universe just because that would be so hard to compute at scale. Right. Right. Yeah. It does seem to operate more like an organic process. That's just growing and flourishing on yeah. its own rather and, than like, and, there, a, and there, yeah. there's just complexity everywhere to an extravagant degree. Yeah. That you don't even see, I mean, you can, you can be going on a walk and it's like, all right, I'm going to stop suddenly randomly look down at this one, square millimeter of stuff and oh my god look at everything going on there yeah you know it's just like an incredible richness down to you know and that's going on all around us i mean it would be so ridiculous to compute that and uh for what you know for what for what purpose <laughs> <laughs> yeah as far as we as far as we know the universe has no objective purpose exactly we it's just like... happen to be here living in it so it's really up to us as humans to make up our own purpose yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. And it feel, feels like so much of science is trying to find like clean explanations for something. Like, why does the butterfly have the little dot on its wing? Oh, well, that's to scare off birds. And it's like, well, okay, so why does this other bird that clearly is not good at surviving because it has got all these, like a peacock, for instance, like, oh, well, that's to attract mates. And you can come up with a reason for each of them. But you could just as easily say, like, well, you know, how boring would it be if it was just a bunch of amoeba living in perfect uniformity? So right. there might be some of the element of what we experience, you know, in our own reality at this level of emergence where things are beautiful. We do value variety. There is this dance moving, like even the fact that when you're born as a baby, you naturally have like rhythm in you. Like if music yeah. plays, you dance. Like who's to say that that doesn't also represent itself on some other layers of emergence, whether higher or lower, you know, why does it have to be just like purely dead mechanics? Um, that right. is so often how it's explained. Um, well, I think of it as live mechanics, but also, I mean, the, it, it is the, the scientific view of, of analysis to take things apart and look at the interactions between the parts in order to understand things. Mm hmm. So when you do that, you sort of have to put blinders on and just focus on the one part that you're going to try to understand. Otherwise, everything else comes in and messes with it. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, that's why, that's why the reasoning seems so basic is because you, you've ignored everything else. And maybe you've gotten to the, the crux of the matter, but maybe you're totally missing it. And that happens all the time. Yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah, I mean, but you have to be aware of this and in looking at things and looking for explanations of things. The the funniest thing I see all the time, since I'm also interested in stock investing and and do that to support myself, is looking at stock market movements and then you look at the analysis the next day, and the analysis next day comes out as if there were very basic reasons for why this happened. (laughs) (laughs) No. The whole thing is such a complex system. There's no way these basic reasons were like actually the reasons why this happened. This is, this is right, true. right. It's 2020 hindsight. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So I have some rapid fire questions for you, but I want to maybe before that just get an update on E8 theory and if there's any sort of, you know, tests that are planned with Kern because you know, one of the things I really like about your theory is that it is testable. So whereas a lot of string theory is very theoretical and might not be able to test it, there right. are particles predicted by your model. So I'm, I'm just curious if there's any like, you know, update on, on tests that are planned or, or even other particles aside from the ones you predict if, if uh, you know, there's any test planned. Right. Well, there. So I, I have to fill in a bunch about that. Um, uh, when I put this proposal forward in 2008 or so about unifying particle physics within this E8 model, uh, there were a lot of blanks left out, and it, it implied that there should be some other uh, bosons, some other fundamental Higgs particles. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then, we did see the the main standard model Higgs that was also predicted by this E8 model in right. 2012 or so, and uh, which, which is wonderful. Um, we have seen no particles since then. We haven't seen super particles that were uh, that I don't think should exist, um, but we also haven't seen new colored Higgs, which is this E8 idea predicted. Um, but the other thing I want to say is when I put forward this E8 model, it wasn't complete, mm-hmm. right? So it, you know, although it did suggest that these other bosons should exist, um, I didn't yet, and I still don't have a perfect match to the known elementary particles. Mm-hmm. So as, as, as well as the, uh, you know, the electrons and the up and down quarks that we know of that make up normal matter, those do fit in this E8 pattern. But there, there are these other second and third generations of matter particles that don't yet have a good description within this, this E8 model, right? There's, there's this vague suggestion that they might be described by tri- triality within this model, but I've never been able to get this to work, and neither is anybody else. Mm-hmm. So I've I've largely moved on to other things, sort of giving up on getting that to work. Um, because before, uh, for any for any physical model you're working on, before you start making predictions with it that you have any confidence in at all, you have to match up with known physics, and there's a ton of known physics. Yeah. Right. And currently, yeah. I don't even have a good match to known physics. So this is why this this model is incomplete, and I I'm, I've never put it forward as a as a complete picture or even as a potential complete picture, but rather just as an interesting observation and direction to look in. Yeah. 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 Well, I love, I love how you're, you know, I feel like we've been exploring the string theory line of, you know, for so long since like the 1970s and haven't really had much, you know, results from that. Yeah. It's full full of crazy ideas and broken promises is what it is. (laughs) Yeah. And to me, it also feels like going from the geometry side, it just would be more useful to be able to think of it in a way that we can, you know, visualize to some extent, a lot of the quantum mechanics, it's just so hard to wrap your head around that. It's like, how useful is it other than making very precise predictions? So I wonder, 
you know, do you feel like the model in academia itself might be a little bit broken where there are so many entrenched interests with, you know, having already gotten this grant money and then they yeah. want to show for it and they've, you know, they've published all these papers. So they kind of need it to, you know, continue rather than just focusing on coming up with as, you know, as many disparate ideas and bringing together as many viewpoints to come up with like the best of all worlds. Yeah. I mean, really what happened is there was, uh, a culture in particle physics of things only progressing along the hottest ideas, right? So if you have some new particles showing up, you have you put together theories for how these new particles are interacting, and you go forward with that and develop that with very rapidly, and everybody sort of piles on that band, bandwagon and go and make progress in it, and hey, look, this worked, we figured this out, and everybody's doing the same thing in the same direction, and things proceed that way. But we haven't had new particle physics experimental results to do that with in many, many decades. And what has happened is the bandwagon effect just kept everybody going in the same theoretical strength theory directions without any experimental checks. Hmm. So now everybody's barreling forward and, and, you know, and you don't let graduate students go out in their funny weird directions. You pull them back and get them on the hot thing because that's the only way they have any chance of getting a job in the future. Right? So everybody's been going forward in the same directions with absolutely no success. Yeah. So now everybody's way on the limb. Everybody has their grant support. Everybody has in, is invested in this direction, not only financially invested in it, but intellectually invested in it, having, having put decades into studying the subject. Because string theory has gotten so convoluted and complex that you, you, you literally have to put decades into it with a brilliant mind in order to understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. Right. And once you've invested all that, you're invested. You have a you have a sunk cost right. in that area of research. And you can't just split off and do something totally different because then you'd be like a helpless, you know, beginner in this new direction. So um, it would have been much healthier in the field, in my opinion, given that we don't have new experimental data coming in to check these things, just to let those graduate students go off and explore whatever the hell they want. Mm hmm. Right. And this is what my advisor did. You know, he, he gave me free reign to go off and and in some whatever weird directions I wanted to. And I, yeah. I turned out being very fruitful for me personally, but it was it was more high risk. Certainly. Yeah, it sort of reminds me of what you said earlier about how like individuals are often smarter than like a top down yeah. rule. So if we can empower individuals to explore whatever paths they find compelling, mm -hmm. And, you know, this, you know, starting up with some rapid fire questions, one thing I wanted to ask you about is whether you think, you know, universal basic income would be a good solution here. So you're not always like you almost scrapping. Got a for... <laughs> <laughs> but that way you wouldn't always yeah. be like scrapping for grant dollars. You could actually have some basic level of safety so you can do whatever you want in life, whether that's exploring physics or some other field. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Politically, uh, I'm sort of a combination of a, a liberal and a libertarian, so I call myself a libertarian. And I, I think given increasing automation and increasing developments in machine learning, I, I think uh, universal basic income is inevitable, mm -hmm. right? It, because if, without it, we're going to have you know people starving in the streets. Yeah. And, and we don't want to live in a society like that. Okay, it's just it's just not optimal as a as a as a rich capitalist, 
you know, you, you don't want to have to make your way through <laughs> through streets of diseased, <laughs> unhappy people. Yeah, because <laughs> it'll yeah. bring you down. You know, how can you how can you enjoy driving around in your Ferrari when they're <laughs> they're bums, heaps of bumness in your way, right? Right. So so yeah, you want you want everybody around you to be having as fulfilling of a life as possible. And one way to sustain this is, is to have a, a minimal amount of um, universal health care, um, basic living expenses available uh, just to provide a minimal roof over your head and food, mm-hmm. right? And as a society, um, given the amount immense resources we've developed over time and the progress of science and technology to support humanity, we can totally do this. Yeah. Right? And And... Even with all the fighting against it, and in my mind, Republicans are mostly just greedy. Um, but even they, you know, during this pandemic, have had to give out uh, support checks for people. And and now we just found out how easy it is just to give everybody a bunch of money, and that's the way it should be done. We shouldn't we shouldn't be giving support to to huge corporations and banks and hope that there's a trickle down effect to the common guy. No, that's bullshit. They'll just give that that money just goes to their share, shareholders. Yeah, I mean, okay, that's that's me, but but I don't need it. I don't. <laughs> I don't need a boost from the government. You know, I, I I'm a you know pretty happy capitalist. Um, yeah. But but people who aren't doing well, people who who are you know struggling to live paycheck from paycheck. Um, absolutely, I think UBI is going to be the way to go. And and yes, not only will it support people who otherwise couldn't support themselves, but people who are brilliant but simply don't want to work at some menial job to support themselves and would rather dedicate themselves to artistic pursuits or to furthering science, they could take that UBI and just be living off that dole and doing something that un- ends up being incredibly productive for humanity as a whole, even if they're never financially compensated for it or, or get paid to do it as a job. It sort of, it sort of disconnects. Um, because Because right now, I mean, the the amount that science has benefited humanity. Yeah. It's right? amazing. Yeah. And, and, it's... and, and that doesn't really go back to scientists. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, they get, yeah. they, I mean, scientists tend to have a fairly higher status a little bit and, and, and they tend not to starve just because they have huge brains and not going to let themselves starve, mm-hmm. but they have to, they have to work for it. And it would be nicer if they had more support and more benefit because of all the benefits that they're providing for society but I'm, I'm very much not a communist I, I, I don't think that uh, I, I think that if you remove the incentives for people to work that most people just won't work right yeah it's important <laughs> to just raise the floor but you still want to have the ceiling be super high so people are incentivized that's I'm right. with you that's exactly right yeah so I'm, I'm, I'm totally on board with that and I think that's be the way to go and I think uh, ultimately um, I mean, this sounds unpatriotic, but I, I guess I'm not much of a statist. But I, I think uh, the United States has become more more European in that sense, with increasing social services, uh, become a little bit more of a welfare state with, with stronger support, um, less military spending, and we might not be militarily number one anymore, and we'll have to deal with that. Yeah, so have to kind of get our national ego in check a little bit. Right. Yeah, yeah that'll be tough. Um, okay, well, I have another related rapid fire question. So you said that you believe machines will eventually become smarter than the average person, which is, you know, artificial general intelligence. 
-hmm. curious how long it, you think it will take uh, for that to happen. Like, do you think that by 2050 that could happen? Um, and then my follow up to that is, do you think that consciousness will arise in sufficiently complex machines, you know, just by the very nature of how intelligent and complex they are, or maybe they won't arise and they'll be super intelligent without consciousness. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Um, I think the answer to all those questions is yes. <laughs> even, even the contradictory ones, even the contradiction right. you, you provide at the end, because um, uh, there, there are a few interesting caveats though, because if you look at the increase in supercomputer power, and what computers uh, are increasingly do in terms of you know uh, the, the density of components on a chip and how you know Moore's law and how the increase in computer power seems exponential. Um, if you just follow that exponential, it, it, if that keeps going as it appears it always ha it has for quite some time now, then yeah, we're looking at around 2050 for having the computational power of the human brain. Um, however, what's not decreasing exponentially is the cost of computation. Hmm. Okay, and especially the energetic cost, right? So the so the um, the cost of computers has also been going up linearly. Yeah. Okay, and and in terms of energetic cost, so um, although it'll have the comp these computers as they get more and more uh, power, um, they'll have this increasing computational power, but that'll come at a greater greater cost. So although we'll have these increasingly intelligent machines, they'll be very expensive to run. Yeah, we'll have to create a Dyson sphere around the sun. <laughs> <laughs> I've always liked I've always liked ring worlds. I think they're more uh, more elegant engineering solution than a Dyson sphere. Oh especially, yeah, especially well mostly because we don't have artificial gravity. So how do you get the gravity thing figured? Right. If you have a ring world and you're spinning a ring world around the sun, then you then you get the the centripetal acceleration gives you gravity at the surface of the ring world and holds everything in. So that, that yeah. I think that was a great idea. Um, yeah. Plus yeah. Larry well, I love Halo. I, I play Halo, the video game, and <laughs> that's like all a ring world. Um, okay, I have another question. So, wait, 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 let me, oh yeah, go ahead. I, I was just getting onto this one. So, um, so yes. So I, I think the time scale for machines exceeding. Uh, human processing power is, is around 2050 if you continue that exponential. Um, but I think it'll be expensive. And I think a lot of those computers will be run by corporations because they'll be the only ones with the financial resources to run them, either, either corporations or nations, both. Um, and they'll end up as, they'll end up making the corporate decisions. Mm -hmm. so, that they'll, so, so super intelligent machines will end up making hiring decisions. You know, because you'll yeah. have machine learning algorithms pretty quick being able to tell who good employees are going to be. Yeah. <clears throat> um, uh, but it's it's going to be cheaper to employ humans. <laughs> yeah. But the, but the computers are going to be calling the shots more and more because they'll get smarter and smarter. Now, and, and eventually, um, I do think you'll have computers that are so smart and they're, and they're uh, sufficiently self-aware that it's going to be impossible not to consider them conscious. Hmm. And um, and then there's also these questions like, well, are you gonna have to give them rights like people? Well, no, they're gonna have rights as corporations. Hmm. Corporations already have rights, and that's already a good vehicle for a, a, a machine intelligence is to exist as a corporation. So our, our corporations are gonna be machine run, and they're they're gonna be the physical instantiations of these super intelligent machines. 
right. you know, interacting in our world. And they already interact economically in our world. So it's, it's already going on. It's just currently they're run by stupid computers and people. <laughs> and the computers are getting smarter. Right. Um, so, yeah. It's, it's, so, so, yes, they'll be conscious. But there will also be just as many cheap computers that are much cheaper to run um, that, are, that are not conscious. But there will be a, a, a grayscale, too. Yeah. And yeah. then also, and then also, you know, with sufficiently uh, complicated computers and sufficiently good scanning technology, we might be able to upload human consciousness itself onto a machine substrate. Yeah, yeah. Which is going to get freaky weird. I know. I've already had to promise my <laughs> wife that I won't do that if it ever becomes an option. Really? <laughs> yeah. Even though I probably on my own, I think it's a good option. But, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so I'm curious. What do you view as the single biggest threat to human civilization? Is it AI? Is it climate change? Is it nuclear war? Like well, no, pandemic is currently is pandemic is a good is a good contestant. Yeah. Um, existence level threats or existential threats. Yeah. Um, there are lots of things that could send us back to, you know, stone age technology. Mm -hmm. Um big meteor strike, really bad pandemic, uh, machines deciding they'd rather not keep us around. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the biggies. Yeah. Uh, uh, on a longer time scale, um, just environmental catastrophe, just literally making this world uninhabitable for ourselves just by burning shit. Mm -hmm. All right. I mean, the fact that, you know, the, that we still have a predominantly petroleum based economy, even though the price of oil just went negative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the, uh, I mean, there's just so much of this stuff and we've gotten so good at pulling it out of the ground and burning it. Um, that it's a, it's just a huge tragedy of the commons mm -hmm. and uh, humanity as a whole just doesn't appear to be bright enough to stop doing this. And we're going to make our own atmosphere unbreathable by us. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> it's worrisome. But that's, is that extinction level? No, because, you know, we, we might make little oxygenated bubbles that we live in, right? Yeah. It, it's just going to be different. I mean, it's just going to, it's going to suck more environmentally, but we'll still keep going as a civilization. So I, I think whatever tragedy strikes us, um, will will persist in some form or another. But we might have some significant setbacks. This this pandemic we're currently enduring is a pretty significant setback. Uh, when we mm -hmm. have more widely available CRISPR kits, and any biohacker uh, with the desire to can engineer some virus worse than this one, and set that loose on the world, that that might be some big setbacks. Yeah, uh, uh, engineers making backpack nuclear weapons. And taking them around and blowing shit up. That, that, that might be a big setback. So humanity has all sorts of setbacks like this in its future. Right. But overall, I'm, I'm a techno-optimist. And I think overall we'll, we'll keep improving quality of life in general. Do you, think, do you think there's anything that could stop emergence itself? Because, you know, you could say that, yeah, humans, we may create some virus or an asteroid may wipe us all out, just like they wiped out the dinosaurs. But just like how the dinosaurs' heyday ended and then mammals took over and created all these amazing things, maybe, 
you know, the planet of the apes will get wiped out of all of us like high level apes. And then it'll be like super smart fish millions of years from now or something. But is there anything that could stop this process of like emergence that just seems to be ongoing? Um, on, uh, I, I will laughingly call them the shorter time scales. No, this appears to be the way the, the, the way nature works is you have some energy source like the sun and that goes through, uh, some medium that allows the complex, uh, operation of all sorts of natural substances to produce, uh, emergent layers of complexity that, that, uh, operate and dump entropy out into the rest of the universe. Right, mm -hmm. so you have this energy flowing through the system and entropy going out, as well as the waste waste heat, energy, right? And and within this complexity continues to evolve in different forms. So even if humanity gets wiped out, as you say, other creatures will evolve, and and, and develop and and flourish, right? Nature just sort of keeps going this way, um, and that'll keep going until all the stars burn out. Yeah, until the big crunch. Yeah. Well, no, not a big or the country. heat death of the universe. Yeah, yeah, it's a heat death. So you you have we have this uh, dark energy driving the accelerating expansion of the universe. So all, all so the stars burn out. They get swallowed by black holes. The black holes evaporate until you have nothing but radiation in the universe. But because the universe is expanding, the radiation itself redshifts into nothing. So you just have this vast expanse of nothing in which nothing can happen. Mm -hmm. But that that's like like yeah, trillions yeah. and trillions of years from now. I mean. It's like, <laughs> Well, it's worried, good to. About, it would be great just to make it to the next hundred. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's good to know we don't have to worry about progress and flourishing and emergence as a whole. It's just our particular little like micro timeline. Yeah. Um, but our micro timeline is certainly interesting. I mean, this uh, this pandemic is going to change things. We're going to have more people interacting online. We're going to have. Uh, fewer group activities, you know, fewer getting together for in bars, fewer, less getting together for sports events, less getting together for everything. Mm -hmm. Extroverts are kind of hating life right now where intro, introverts are kind of like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of comfortable with this. <laughs> awesome. Well, I want to get into the future scenarios now. So let's start with the worst case scenario. So I want to get a sense for in your mind, what's the worst case scenario for how physics and just our understanding of reality would evolve in the next, you know, 10, 100 years? Worst case scenario. Um, 10 years, if we just keep going with the same bandwagon. Mm -hmm. Right. And they keep, keep declaring success. Right. And they then they succeed in divorcing themselves from the scientific method, saying, hey, the scientific method is no longer to test things. The scientific method, the new scientific method is to propose ideas and the community decides whether those ideas are good or not. Hmm. Right. That's mm -hmm. the way string theory is going. And uh, that's horrible right and so that that's worst case for the next 10 years best case scenario better case would be uh maybe china steps up and builds a, a much larger collider and we actually get some new data about new particles coming in that support theories going in different directions right so that we have more of a 
a golden age again of, of particle physics with, with, with more data on the ground to, to play with and, and, and get more insights into fundamental physics. Yeah, and, and in the best case, what could we discover? Like in, our, in your wildest dreams, what discoveries would we, would we possibly be able to make like in our lifetime, whether it's you know, specifically through the Large Hadron Collider or just other technologies, whether it's you know, time travel or warp drive or extending longevity? or like What are the inventions that really excite you when you think about future potential? Um, the most exciting one for me um, is absolutely uh, longevity, mm -hmm. right? Happier, healthier life for longer. Yeah. Okay. That that is absolutely has the largest potential for improving life, not only for me personally, but for uh, humans on the planet. Mm -hmm. right? Also, when people live longer and they know they're gonna be living, say, for thousands of years, maybe we'll take better care of this place. Yeah. Totally. Right? Now I might I might not paraglide as much. <laughs> so if I know that you know without some accident happening, I'm going to live thousands of years. I might be more cautious. Right. Okay. I'd probably still surf. Yeah. Surfing's safe. But paragliding eh, is a little on the riskier side. But you know, I've only got like maybe 40 years left, so <laughs> I've got less to lose. It's and paragliding is pretty damn fun, so I probably keep doing that. Um. Uh. But yeah, longevity absolutely has the the biggest potential. Um. In terms of other stuff, really smart computers does it make a big difference, mm -hmm. right? And maybe with the computers running stuff, they'll make better decisions in general than humans are. Maybe maybe, maybe that'll overcome this phenomenon of mobs of humans being dumb. Yeah. Right. Maybe mobs of human humans coordinated uh, under the leadership of really smart and compassionate machines will do better. Um, also, I'm seeing. I'm really happy to see uh, photovoltaics for energy production increase. Yeah, um, I, I think that has great potential. Um, we really need to stop burning stuff. Mm -hmm. The uh, so those 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 are the most practical things I see as improving our future. Um, Do you think those, uh, those quantum computers will play a big role? That seems like the next yeah. major area yeah, of investment. Yeah. So I, for... I think. I think quantum computing has a has a really bright future. Uh, I'm not sure on the time scale. I think the time scale might be a little bit uh, further ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And I think before quantum computing gets really effective at making more powerful computers, it might also uh, have some progress in optical computing. Hmm. So, so doing computations with light and and uh, using light to modify the substrate that the light's going through itself, and using that to create logical circuits. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Faster. Yeah. Because cause currently, I mean, electrons traveling around a chip, you know, it happens pretty fast, but there are problems uh, with how to dissipate that much heat. And we're already down at, you know, tiny scales for how small we can make get the circuitry. We're down to the atomic scale already. And uh, so we're hitting limits there. But working with light, lights can, light travels uh, faster than electrons do through circuits. So we can have faster optical circuitry than we can electrical circuitry. Um, so optical computing, I think, has a lot of potential for for faster computation. Uh, and that'll that'll probably happen in between current computation and quantum computation. Hmm. Well, wow. quantum computers will will ultimately have a have more computational power. So that that yeah. that'll be a, a pretty good breakthrough too. But these, and I think these, um, I think these will help 
uh, Moore's Law continue along its path. Right. Have you seen the show Devs, D-E-V-S? It's on uh, Amazon Prime. You know, I, I, I just started downloading it. Oh. <laughs> but I haven't, I haven't started watching it yet. Okay. It's on my queue. I'm finding yeah. myself an unusual amount of time to watch shows at now night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I won't give anything away then, but um, I'm really interested to hear, maybe you know later I can email you or something, but interested to hear if that is somewhat realistic the way they portray quantum computers ability to simulate past and and future events um basically i I don't want to give anything away but with the computer that they build they're eventually able to basically turn back time and look at what jesus christ actually says on the cross in aramaic based on the coordinates of you know space time and you know and you'd have to have i mean I think that's unrealistic given what we know about dynamical chaos. Mm. So you, you're aware of the butterfly effect? Yeah. How, you know, there's some tiny change in one place and you, you go forward a few weeks and that tiny change has made a huge difference in the state of the system. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the way nature works. We have this interconnectedness of all things where little tiny changes here have huge effects just by running the system forward or backwards. Right. So you might be simulating a slightly different history if you were to build that. I mean, mean, we're going to get much better at simulating things that can happen. Mm -hmm. But because we don't have sufficient data, sufficient detail, because we literally can't, um, uh, we won't be able to know exactly what did happen in this one timeline. But we will be able to simulate other timelines. Right. And that also brings up the question of free will. It's like, well, if you can just you know, turn back time and see what Jesus said, then did you really have the free will to say that? So I I mean, yeah, I had to ask you about free will. So (laughs) what are your thoughts? Um, I answered them by saying you had to ask about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I think we have the perception of free will. And I think that's a valid perception that we have of free will, but that we don't actually have free will. Hmm. Okay. So, but but that we absolutely should behave as if we do, because for all intents and purposes we do, but not really. <laughs> yeah, no, I I'm with you. I think it's you could you could view it from either side. I mean, I personally I feel like free will is yet another emergent phenomena, or just action in general. It's like you just do what feels right to be done, and that's both because you internally want it, and it's because of all the environmental influences and just the very fact of what your DNA is and who you came from and your upbringing and all that. Yes, uh, that, the, the, the free will you're experiencing with, as a result of your neurons firing, as, as a result of all the environmental input and, and evolution that's happened to make you you, um, that's resulted specifically in those free will decisions going on in your brain mechanically as they have to, is yeah that's that that is the free will happening deterministically (laughs) (laughs) all right well the final question or just the final main area i want to ask about is the most likely scenario so what do you think not what you would like to happen or what's the worst case but what do you actually predict will happen in the field of physics in the next let's say 10 years 
Most likely scenario. In the next 10 years, I, I think we are going to sh see a shift, um, which is going to be uncomfortable for most of the physics community, uh, to a, probably to a Chinese collider um, for fundamental, for particle physics. Mm -hmm. The rest of physics, like solid state physics, uh, plasma physics, like building a fusion reactor, I mean, I think that stuff is fantastic. Um, biophysics, also really great right now. Um, it was very practical import. But I think this is, you know, <laughs> not a fantastic time for particle physics um, because I think it's going to be, uh, become, uh, it's had, you know, with CERN being sort of a, a melting pot of different uh, cultures and nations coming together, all working in this in this one space uh, on the LHC. Um, I think the next collider might be Chinese, um, and they'll have very nationalistic uh, control of it and and of the results. So that's that might not be very happy uh, for a lot of the physics community, um, especially if they find something really cool and aren't super upfront about disclosing what they find. Mm -hmm. um, or even if they just name some new particle with the Chinese character, that was going to be kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that I mean, we'll adapt. And I'm not, I'm not nationalistic. I, I, I'm happy to see, you know, progress made towards understanding fundamental physics, wherever it comes from. Um, but, uh, but the worst case really is that it doesn't get built at all. I mean, worst case is we're plunged into war. Yeah. I mean, and that whether that's a, a cold war or a, a cyber war or a drone war, it's not going to be fight with normal weaponry. It's not. It's not mm -hmm. going to be fought with nuclear weapons or normal weaponry. It's going to be. It's going to be fought with computers and drones. Uh, drone drones would be the you know the most physical instantiation. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, that's the wor worst case is absolutely war and and the yeah. huge destruction and cost that comes with that. I, I certainly hope we would avoid that. I hope one of the things we're learning now from uh, from this pandemic. And just how costly it is uh, to shut things down economically. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that will hopefully discourage us. And it's kind of an interesting thing. It, it, either it's going to unify the world because we have a common enemy in this virus. Okay, it would be wonderful. It unifies the world and say, "Hey, we have to work together more strongly to prevent things like this and to recover from what what's happened." Or it's going to make things more divisive, and it's like. Fucking China. This guy had to go eat a bat, you know? It's like, <laughs> yeah, seems like the latter has been more the case, and, unfortunately. And, and really, just shit happens. Yeah. Really, just shit happens, and the world should get better at dealing with stuff like this. We need to be more, more organized in our responses. We need to be more organized in contact tracing um, in, a, in a hopefully anonymized way. Um, and, and we just need to get better at dealing with stuff like this as a whole. And, I, and it's kind of shameful we don't have a more strong, a stronger world government right now. Yeah. Right? It, it, just for safety reasons and for response reasons. But, but realistically, uh, as you're saying, it seems like we're, we'll have more division. And sadly, I think we're going to have more wealth disparity. Because mm -hmm. right now... Um, people who are poor and living pay to, paycheck to paycheck, everybody's going into more debt. Yeah. I, I mean, over 25% of renters aren't paying rent. Mm -hmm. 
Um, mm. be, and, and eviction laws are, are largely suspended. So evictions are largely suspended. People are not paying debt, but they still owe that money to their landlords. So a few, not, few months from now, they're going to owe huge amounts of money. It might make sense for them not to pay it. They might just move out instead, which means they'll be homeless or living on a friend's couch. So we're going to get this huge wave of homelessness coming in a few months. Homelessness and people, they'll, they'll still be in debt, so they'll still have credit agencies coming after them now. Yeah. So I also have, I've read that even with stop. like the, the $1,200 payments, only three cents of every dollar is going to actual individuals, not like companies. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess. Yeah. No, yeah the, the, money, the money should go to the bottom. It shouldn't right. be going to the, the bottom up. Yeah. The, the, the whole idea of trickle down economics is just a farce. Yeah. You, you want to, you, the people who aren't making money, who aren't able to work right now because under quarantine, um, pretty much, pretty much everybody should just get a couple thousand a month right now to, to keep them going um, yeah. through this. And, and, and that'll trickle up into the rest of the economy as people spend it. Totally. And, 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 and you can't, and that's not sustainable that you do that, that'll devalue the currency. But, you know, our currency is pretty damn strong. You can take a little devaluing. It's better than putting everybody into debt because the yeah. debt's just going to be crushing after this. Uh, we're going to have corporate, corporate debt and bankruptcies all over the place. Um, we're, we'll have private bankruptcies and insolvency all over the place. It's just going to fucking economically suck. Yeah. Um, but but people, people who are wealthy are going to do mostly fine because they, they, they saw it coming more than most did um, and shuffled their investments around. So mm -hmm. either didn't lose a ton of money or, or even made money off this thing. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm pretty much even. I, I took a dip for a while, but then mostly recovered, so I'm pretty much even. Um, so I'm, but, but I'm just seeing this as being a, a pretty dark few years yeah. economically for people. And freaking, man, millennials have had a rough time. <laughs> <laughs> economically, yeah. it's just like, yeah, after the recession and now this, they, they, have, they have to deal with. Yeah, this, is, this sucks. Yeah, well, I'm curious, you know, given all that and how crazy things are right now, what advice you would give to our listeners? You know, a lot of our listeners are millennials or they're Gen Z and, yeah. you know, either they're in school, now they're taking Zoom classes, they're yeah. deciding what their major is, they're deciding do they want to go down a more traditional path or forge their own path in the world kind of like you have. So I'm curious what advice you have. Um, the main advice I would give is... Um, the, the value of labor, whether it be physical labor or intellectual labor is decreasing hmm. and the, and the value of invested capital is increasing. Okay. And it's already hugely imbalanced now where capital is currently worth much more than labor and it's going to keep going. And that's what it means. And, and this is why we have wealth inequality. So what you want to do is instead of you, you know, use your, use your brain to work, to make money but also use a bunch of that brain to invest that money. Um, invest in your own future earning potential. Invest in uh, stuff that's going to produce for you in the future. And learn how to invest in stocks. Mm -hmm. Maybe install Robinhood or one of these other apps on your phone <clears throat> that'll let you invest easily. Although you should probably complain to Robinhood that they don't allow shorting. <laughs> that's really annoying. Because they, they, Robinhood's like, yeah, yeah, buy options. You want to do options trading instead of shorting. No, options are usually a crap deal. Because <laughs> usually, because you lose your bet. If, you, if, you, if you're wrong, you totally lose your bet. Whereas if you're shorting or you're wrong about a long bet, you, you're just going to lose a small percentage of it. But mm -hmm. when you're doing options, you lose your whole bet. And it's usually a crappy deal. It's usually stacked in the house's uh, favor. 
Whereas investing in stocks, it's usually in your favor. Stocks on average are going to go up. So, so learn how to invest. Just start with just a few stocks. Use, use fractional share trading, which is getting introduced. So you can buy like $10 of stocks. Yeah. Right. And, and, and learn how to do that. Learn how to grow your investments into the future because that's what you're going to be living off of. I guarantee you 20 years from now, um, if you're a millennial, you're not going to be living off your work. You're going to be living off your investments. Yeah. Because computers and, other, and others are going to be doing your work, the physical work and intellectual work. And for their work, like what, what areas of work do you think would be more promising versus less promising if, ki if kids are deciding like what major to do? Or do you think it's just really whatever you're passionate about? Like, Well, well um, you definitely want to do what you love, um, but you also have to support yourself. If you need to support yourself and you have the intellectual capacity to learn to program and be happy about doing it, uh, that's a good way to make money. Um, did you do all your uh, programming self-taught? Uh, I did. Yeah. So I started, wow. uh, yeah, I learned Applesoft basic when I was like 10 years old. And <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> sort of taught myself up from there. It's like walked into, walked into computer science class in high school and, and uh, helped the professor work through a course of how to learn Pascal. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, and then taught myself C from there. And, and, uh, JavaScript is kind of a mess, but yeah, I learned that a little bit and, and, uh, but most, mostly I never got really into programming cause I, I went off into physics instead, mm -hmm. but I do love it. And it's a, it's one, wonderful to be able to do it and you get immediate results. It, the wonderful thing about coding is you get to build stuff and run it and see it run and, and your creation is alive and functioning and you just made that. It's very satisfying. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the downside is it's frustrating, especially now you have all these libraries and packages you have to deal with. It's hard. But anyway, yeah. So if, if you if you enjoy it, definitely coding is a great way to make money. But always you, you want to have 10 to 20 percent of your brain thinking about the world and good investments to make in the world. Yeah. It's not just about making money. It's about making money with money. Be yeah. And, and, and that and that's cumulative. Mm -hmm. The investments you, you make, you want to think that that's cumulative. That's going to build. And it's not just put it in a bank and it grows at 1% interest rate. No, invest it wisely and grow that shit at 10%. Mm -hmm. You grow something at 10% interest rate for, for a decade, you got some money. Yeah. 20 years, 30 years, you'll be able to live well off of it and then you don't have to work some shit job anymore. You yeah. don't have to do what anybody tells you to do anymore. You got a few money. I know that that's the dream to true <laughs> financial freedom, do what you want. And, and I guess like, I guess yeah, one good way to sort of, uh, you know, bring this home would be, so even if you are able to support yourself fully, what's the benefit of pursuing knowledge and wisdom and understanding the universe? Like, you know, you could, from one perspective say, oh, it's all just a waste of time. Like, why don't you just like live your life and be happy? So I guess like for you, like how has, uh, you know, gaining a greater understanding of the workings of the universe influenced the way you live your life or just how you view reality? Well, there are two ways. One is I know there's no objective purpose to reality. So uh, so it's up to us as humans to create our own meaning and to care about each other. Um, so uh, it's also given me appreciation for the, uh, the ephemerality and value of life and our time on this planet. So it's, it's motivated me to make stronger connections with, with other humans and to, and to grow a good network of friends. And 
Uh, as well as, you know, physics gives one a, a rich appreciation for nature and uh, the functioning of this universe and its structure. Um, so I, so I, I, I drive a lot of benefit from it, both, both personally and philosophically. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you so much, <laughs> Garrett, for, for taking the time today. Where, where can people find you if they want to learn more and get, get in touch? Um, I'm pretty easy to find, uh, Instagram's a great way to keep, uh, just to see what's going on in my life. Um, but I talk to most people on Facebook. Uh, if, if you, uh, so if you want to follow me there or join the conversations there, most of my posts are public and have public conversations on them. So that's, that, if, if you actually want to talk to me, that's a good way to stay in touch. Um, uh, that or Instagram or, uh, just Google me and look at stuff online and stay in touch that way. Or ultimately, if you, if you, you know, really want to hang out, you know, come to Maui and enjoy the place and yeah. <laughs> actually hang out in real life, if that's a thing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it becomes a thing again. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you to our listeners. This has been the future of physics. And we'll see you next time. We're talk about right, Matt, great talking to you. And I hope you get some waves soon. Yeah, me too. <laughs> awesome. right, take care. The past, the present, and the future.